are listening to the English language news of Khan, the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation. Good evening, it's 8 p.m. on Friday, the 1st of March. Shabbat Shalom. This is Mark Weiss with a roundup of the top news stories at this hour. Iran's official news agency, Irina, has confirmed that a member of Iran's Revolutionary Guards Navy, serving in a military, as a military advisor in Syria, was killed in a suspected Israeli strike on Friday on an apartment in the city of Banyas. Two Hezbollah members were also reportedly killed in the attack. The Revolutionary Guards have scaled back deployment of their senior officers in Syria due to a spate of deadly Israeli attacks. On the northern border, Israeli fighter jets struck a Hezbollah military building near the village of Aita Ash-Shab in southern Lebanon, as well as another building and infrastructure near the village of Jabal Blat. Egyptian Foreign Minister Sameh Shukri said on Friday that Egypt is hopeful that talks initiated by Qatar can lead to a cessation of hostilities in Gaza before the start of the Ramadan month in nine days' time. Jewish settlers have established a new outpost near the settlement of Eli in the northern West Bank a day after the shooting attack at the gas station near Eli. Yitzhak Zeiger, one of the two people killed in the attack, was laid to rest in Jerusalem today. Rabbi Yeshua Schmidt, who is the rabbi of the Shavei Shomron community where Zeiger lived, spoke at the funeral saying, You took care of everyone. I always ask you, when do you have time to sleep? So many good things you did. You had a huge heart. Zeiger is survived by his wife, three children and two grandchildren. The IDF measured the home of the terrorists from Kalandia who committed the attack in Eli last yesterday prior to its demolition. The terrorist, an officer in the Palestinian police force, was killed by the restaurant owner at the gas station, Aviad Gizbar, a, an officer in the reserves who was on leave from serving in Gaza. South Africa said on Friday that the killing of Palestinians awaiting aid in Gaza breached the World Court's provisional orders in the legal case in which Pretoria has accused Israel of committing genocide in the Gaza Strip. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has condemned the yesterday's death of more than 100 Gaza residents, according to Hamas claims, around the aid convoy in Gaza City. He said desperate civilians need urgent help and said the killing of over 100 people seeking humanitarian aid was a situation that would require an effective, independent investigation. The U.S. blocked an attempt by Arab nations to get immediate support for a U.N. Security Council statement that would have blamed Israel for the incident. Hamas accused Israel of firing at civilians, but Israel said almost all of those killed died in a crush or were run over by the trucks. The IDF is continuing its ground operations in the Gaza Strip. According to IDF data, troops killed more than 450 terrorists in the last 10 days. Since the start of the war, more than 13,000 terrorists were killed, according to the IDF. The European Commission has decided to again fund UNRWA, the UN Refugee Agency. It announced today it will transfer the first tranche of $54 million that was due to be paid around the end of last month. The remaining $89 million will be paid over the rest of the year. 
in line with the agreement with UNRWA to address concerns raised by Israeli accusations. The commission suspended payment after Israel determined that 12 UNRWA staff took part in the October the 7th massacres. The families of the hostages that belong to the Hostage and Missing Families Forum continued their march today from, that they began on Wednesday from the Gaza periphery to Jerusalem with the slogan, Uniting for their release. Today they carried stretchers as a gesture to the hostage soldiers. Security cabinet members Benny Gantz and Chili Chopper of the National Unity Party came to show support to the families. Gantz said the task was to win the war and bring back the hostages as quickly as possible. Family members of hostages held in Gaza held a rally outside the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv today in support of President Biden's administration. The rally organizers said that the American administration is more committed to the hostages than the Israeli government. And they put their trust in the U.S. government and ask it to strengthen in these times. That's the news. Shabbat Shalom. This is Mark Weiss from Jerusalem. You are listening to the English language news of Khan, the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation. Good evening and Shabbat Shalom. This is Mark Weiss with some of the top culture and arts stories from the week gone by. A new document has been discovered that could have a significant bearing on the controversial sale of the large parking lot in Jerusalem's old city's Armenian quarter to developers who plan to build a hotel on the site. The document from 1574 purports to show that the land in question is supposed to benefit the Armenian community and therefore the Armenian patriarch of Jerusalem who sold the land three years ago had no right to do so. Jerusalem attorney Danny Seiderman, who is helping the Armenian community, spoke with us about the dispute and the latest twist. Uh, the Armenian community in Jerusalem has roots that go back many centuries, uh, but much of it uh, 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 finds its way back to the Armenian Holocaust at the beginning of the 20th century. There's an Armenian quarter. Uh, and there are um, between one, one and two thousand uh, Armenians in that community who are left, and it's one of the most vulnerable communities in Jerusalem. Uh, it is one of the four quarters of Jerusalem, and the land transaction regarding a chunk of that um, uh, Armenian quarter is at the center of this controversy. Um, it, it turns out that the patriarchate and the patriarch signed an agreement to sell a large part of the Armenian quarter to developers. Who exactly those developers are remain cloaked in mystery, although I have rather educated guesses who that might be. This was done without the knowledge and the consent of the community. Uh, who were shocked to find out that this has happened. And when they looked into the matter, things became not only murkier, but more suspicious. 
that's pretty much where we stand. Now, I understand that last week a new document was um, discovered that has a very significant bearing on the case. Tell us about that document. One of the blessings of living in Jerusalem is that you can come across a document from the 16th century that is totally relevant for today, and that's what's happened. One of the questions that arose in the framework of this purported transaction, who owns the property? Uh, It was the patriarchate and the patriarch who signed the agreement selling land or leasing land for long periods as if it were their own private property. However, if you go back into the records, and we're talking about the records at the time we were in the Sharia court, it turns out that the patriarchate is not the owner of this land. It is the community itself. And at best, the patriarchate are um, stewards or uh, the trustees of the ownership in the name of the real owners, which are the Armenians who live in and around the Armenian quarter of the old city. If that is indeed the case, the patriarchate did not have the authority to sell something which wasn't theirs in the first place. Have you presented this document to the court? Uh, I have not, because I am not attorney of record. I am sympathetic and in contact with the Armenian um, uh, community in Jerusalem. It is a deeply rewarding thing to come across this community. It's what makes Jerusalem Jerusalem. But I'm not legally. I'm not. Um, um, I am not representing them legally, uh, but I do understand that this document has been presented to court, if I'm not mistaken. And in your opinion, this is a game changer? It's difficult to say in Jerusalem what game changers are. This appears to be a highly consequential document, which could be decisive, but there are many other facts that are pertinent and I would advise caution before deriving any conclusive uh, conclusions about this. Now, you said earlier in the interview that you could make an educated guess who was behind this uh, land purchase. Um, are you alluding to the fact that it may be right-wing Jewish settler groups? Well, you know, I, I, I have difficulty explaining why somebody sent me a photograph of the heads of one of the prominent settler organizations sitting in the lobby of a Jerusalem hotel with the purported purchasers. I have trouble explaining why when the community was assaulted by the developers who purportedly uh, um, bought the land, why the thugs that they hired to attack the residents of the Armenian Quarter, among them were prominent settlers from East Jerusalem. Now, if I had a suspicious mind, I would say there's an indication that East Jerusalem settlers are behind this. But of course, I do not have a suspicious mind. Just as well. Um, Finally, what would be the impact, do you think, on the small and vulnerable Armenian community, as you described them, if they lost this case? The Christian communities of Jerusalem are challenged. 
Um, the Christians in Jerusalem in 1948 were 20% of the population, like 31,000 out of 160,000. Today, the Christian population is on the order of one, one and a half percent. So 14,000 out of a million. Um, and they are struggling to maintain themselves, to maintain the integrity of their communities. And they're an integral part of Jerusalem. If that is the case with the Christian communities in Jerusalem, it's doubly and triply the case regarding the Armenians, who not, uh, unlike us, are survivors of a Holocaust, uh, whose homeland is um, under threat um, by Azerbaijan, uh, they are one of the most vulnerable communities in Jerusalem. And it is the, in the interest of all Jerusalemites to do nothing that will undermine the viability of these communities. We are who we are because there is an Armenian community in Jerusalem, and were there not to be, we would be a much impoverished city. Jerusalem attorney Danny Seiderman, who is helping the Armenian community. Now, Ninette Tayeb with Kol Yechol Likrot, Anything Can Happen.
The second Latino America Music Festival will take place at the Tel Aviv Museum of Art next week. International artists from Cuba, Argentina, Brazil, Italy, Germany and Cape Verde will join Israeli counterparts for a program featuring the diverse rhythms and melodies of Latin American music. Festival Artistic Director Ziv Bem spoke to reporter Nomi Segal about the upcoming festival and why at this time it is especially important for the event to go ahead. Well, yes, we all suffer, um, especially the families of the hostages, but we are trying to uh, overcome as much as we can and also the citizens of the, of the country, of course, I think... Uh, they need some uh, fresh air, some refreshments, some some uh, places to go out and uh, listen on, not only for news and television, also some music and culture. It's not easy because uh, not all artists are willing to come to Israel. There are still many, many of them are afraid, uh, which Israel is not uh, the best friend anymore. You know, things like that, we still involve politics and arts. We try to split them, but uh, we'll do the festival with guests from abroad, very, very good artists which will come, also among them, um, Maria de Barras will come, we'll have uh, Mario Stefano, the uh, bandoneon player, tango, and many others, also Israeli, uh, that play beautifully this kind of uh, genre. So tell us a little bit about the idea behind the festival and what's in store for this current second edition yes um, the idea is to combine the uh, latin uh, latin america which is the south american the brazil argentina colombia and uh, this country that's on this continent with the um the, uh, which uh, with the caribbean music with the salsa music the cuban the islands music um the south american and the latino it's quite different, but we, since it's the same region, uh, uh, more or less, uh, we put them together with beautiful rhythm, beautiful harmonies, uh, exotic singers and uh, melodies and beautiful uh, tradition uh, for uh, this coming festival. We'll have, um, we'll start on uh, Thursday with the Cannibal Adderley Bossa Nova CD, which is coming from the 60s. The beautiful melodies uh, that he plays with the saxophone. Uh, the soloist will be Lenny Sandersky. Then uh, we'll do also the um, uh, concerto for Brazil with the Chorale Ensemble, which is very jumpy ensemble uh, with the 
partly Israelis, partly um, Brazilian immigrants who uh, live in Israel. We'll do, of course, the beautiful Cape Verdean songs of uh, Cesaria Evora with Maria de Baos. Uh, she comes uh, from Cape Verde. And, uh, of course, we do the Brazil Primavera with the uh, duo, beautiful duo of uh, Marcelo Nami and Joka Papinian, uh, the beautiful Brazilian melodies, uh, some uh, original composition, uh, guitar and percussion. Uh, this is the only duo, but it's very rich in sound and rhythm and, of course, voices. And as you mentioned, the music is quite diverse. The origins of each region, is there a sense of some sort of arc connecting um, the different pieces of music, where yes, the music uh, came it's from? Based on, it's based on geography, but uh, mainly it's, it's uh, the rhythms came from uh, West African, uh, the slaves who brought them also to New Orleans, but they brought them to Cuba and to the islands, um, the, the Caribbean islands. And then they met the European, uh, the European harmonies, the European instruments, exactly as, as made in, uh, in uh, New Orleans. And this went far further to the South, uh, South American countries. And uh, I would say that the South American uh, melodies or culture are more influenced by the European um, European culture and the island, the Latino, uh, influenced more by the uh, West African and the traditional rhythms and traditional uh, some melodies and some ceremonies even. Uh, so uh, we put them together. They are based on the encounter uh, uh, of the cultures, the African and the European cultures, which got different colors uh, from the South American countries and the Caribbean islands. So when and where is all this happening? The festival will take place at the Tel Aviv Museum from the 7th of March, 7th, 8, 9 in March. Um, we'll start uh, the 7th of March in the afternoon, but uh, late at night. And then on Friday, the 8th and the 9th, Saturday, we'll start in the morning, quite uh, 11 o'clock, half past 11. We'll have the choir that sings the Misa Criosa uh, with the singers and the 30 singers of the choir, some soloists and singers, of course. We'll have the Black Samba ensemble, which uh, will take place with all rhythms and percussions uh, during the festival. And uh, we'll have, of course, of course, of course, the tribute to Astro Gilberto with Ligia Oliveira and uh, Giva Perman Quintet, which the beautiful uh, songs of, of Astro Gilberto, of, uh, Antonio Carlos Jubin, the girl from Ipanema, you know, and Juan uh, Sailor, and uh, all these beautiful, the shadow of your smile. And all these beautiful uh, songs and melodies. Ziv Ben, director of the Latino America Musical Festival, happening between March the 7th and the 9th. More information can be found at hotjazz.co.il. Now, Machina with Ahuvati, my love. חיפשתי כבר בכל היריד, אהובתי, 
Israel-Hamas war continues. Anti-Semitism has been rising in Europe. Is there a difference between the nature of anti-Semitism before October the 7th and after? How do Israelis experience anti-Semitism? And how to identify and combat it? This is the focus of the research and a book written by educational consultant Anita Khaviv Horiner called Nothing New in Europe. Israelis look at anti-Semitism today. She spoke to reporter Nomi Segal. My book uh, has been published before October 7th. And uh, if I had to answer the question today, I think nothing is new in Europe today with regard to anti-Semitism. It just has become 
even more threatening, more physical, and clo- much closer to home than before. I, I hear from many friends who live in Europe that they say, uh, you know, my closest friends are, are getting it, man, asking me, what are you doing to the poor people in Gaza? I mean, people who have lived in Europe for the last 20 years or, or who are just Jewish people living in the diaspora. So that's a, that's a great change in terms of how close it gets to all of us. How is it impacting the lives of those living in Europe? In what way? I mean, people start to hide their mezuzot and any other Jewish signs at home. They, they are really afraid. I mean, in Vienna, they, they burned a part of the Jewish cemetery. So you don't know what is happening when, and it's much more present. Yeah, I mean, a lot of threats also, but also a lot of incidents. In Germany alone, there was a rise of 320% in comparison to 2000. And 22, with regard to anti-Semitic incidents, that's a lot. And uh, people just feel much more threatened. They are afraid. And there are even some people, especially the older generation, among them Holocaust survivors, who say it just feels like then because I'm afraid again. I don't feel at home. And the other thing is that many people realize that Israel is not necessarily the safe heaven that we always thought. Also, Israel is in Israel, but certainly uh, people in the diaspora that it is supposed to be. They don't feel that they would be safe in Israel, even given the dangers or threats that they're encountering abroad? It depends. Obviously, it always depends whom you are asking. But the fact is, that Israel hasn't acted as a safe haven on October 7th, and people see that. And um, they are not blind to it. Israel was attacked on October 7th. Yes, but Israel also, you know, the army wasn't there, and a lot of people weren't there. So uh, people look at it. I mean, this is what happened. Obviously, Israel was attacked. Obviously, Hamas is the big bad guy, but Israel has not acted on its responsibility towards its citizens, and at the same time, uh, Jews feel more threatened. So they are not so sure that Israel is such a safe heaven anymore. Now, your research, uh, Israelis look at anti-Semitism today. Why this differentiation specifically of Israelis as a group, I guess within the broader group of, as, of Jews? Because, because you know, as always, things start with your own life. And uh, I'm an Israeli who was born and grown up in the diaspora, and I had to deal with anti-Semitism in Vienna. And uh, I was curious how other Israelis felt about it. And I wanted to interview people from the age of 20 to 80, from eight countries, and uh, and I think the Israeli factor plays a, a very important role because it's different than being only Jewish. 
you have a different outlook. If, if you have grown up in Israel or you came to Israel later, it depends, each biography has its own story, obviously. But you have a different attitude. You're talking about Israelis who live in Israel or Israelis who live abroad? I interviewed both. Some come from abroad and came to live in Israel. And some went from Israel out of professional reasons or because they fell in love or because with their parents. So both ways it goes. And I do see a difference between people who grew up among the interviewees, I'm talking, uh, who grew up in Israel and those who came to Israel at the later stage. In what because way? I, I think that people who grew up in the diaspora have very sharp ears for anything connected to anti-Semitism. We hear the subtext very clearly. Whereas uh, Israelis who came at a later stage, many times are for the first time confronted with the phenomenon and they, they are kind of surprised and, wow, did this really happen to me? Others think, you know, we are really doing bad things to the Palestinians, so I can understand that these Europeans feel that way. But men, most of the people get to a stage where they see that this is not necessarily about the Palestinians. And that many people have a problem with Israel. So you're saying this is about differentiating between criticism of Israel's policies versus Israel being a backdrop for anti-Semitic sentiment? Yes, definitely. Israel, you know, is a kind of projection uh, phase for many people. Obviously, you can uh, criticize Israel policies. I mean, who doesn't in Israel even? Uh, But many times you, you come to the point where people tell you, you know, basically, Israel is not really legitimate. It's a, it's a colonization project, and it was a wrong decision to create. And today, people feel more free to express those issues. And it's coming from the left also, and it's coming from the right also. So, so you know, once we had more of a problem with, with the right wing in Europe, which still is a very serious problem. But you have also certain segments of the European left which doesn't criticize Israel, but it hates Israel. And and that's a big difference to me. So based on your research and your role as an educator, and certainly these are some of the things you may be talking about in the upcoming uh, workshop, what are some ways to address these issues when people encounter them? Yeah. Listen, I very much believe in the strength of personal stories. That's why I interview people. I want the readers to see them in their context. Where did they come from? What experiences did they have uh, with regard to the Holocaust? How did they grow up? What raised their fears? And... Uh, and then only to reach out to the issue of anti-Semitism. So, first of all, I'm trying to put the people I interview in a context, in their own context. And then what I try to do, and, and that's basically what I'm 
what is my main goal is to bring people to the point where they ask themselves, how do I make my judgment? Do I have uh, many informations or not? Uh, am I kind of hostile to Israel or am I critical of Israel? It's a big difference. Uh, did I hear uh, voices from the Israeli right wing, perhaps? I don't have to agree at the end of the day with everything I hear, but I have to listen. And, and uh, interviews allow people to listen. And I tell them, don't jump immediately to, to, into an argument. Just try to understand. And when you take this time to understand the person, then you're also, you get curious. You know, you know what is Israel about or what does it mean to be Jewish or um, how do I, um, how, um, what influence has my family had on, anti, on anti-Semitic views of mine or not? Or what was I taught at school? You know, I want people to work with a question mark. And once you do that, you can, by the way, also apply it to other fields. You know, when you meet other minorities, for instance. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. Anita Khaviv Harina. Now Yuval Dayan with La Sof to collect.
Classical pieces inspired by folk music shape the Tel Aviv Soloists Ensemble's current concert program, the third performance of which took place yesterday in Akko. The ensemble is joined by a reunion of the Jerusalem Trio and soprano Shani Oshri for a program featuring works by Beethoven, Bartok, Mozart and a new original work by Israeli composer Daniel Akiva dedicated to Oshri, whose style incorporates artistic singing technique with folk singing traditions. Oshri spoke to reporter Nomi Segal. It's really some unique concert uh, we had already have two concerts, one in Haifa and one in Tel Aviv, in the Halatarbu Tel Aviv. And we have another one in Accra, in the 29th of February. And about the piece, I'm really excited to talk about it, because it's written specially to me, and it's a world premiere, actually. This is Little Sister by Daniela Kiva. Yes, it's called Achot Ktana in Hebrew. And it's a very famous song. Uh, they read it in the synagogue in Rosh Hashanah. And tell us a bit about the work. The work uh, was actually amazing because I know Daniela Kiva, the composer, for, I believe, 10 or 15 years. I met him when I was a little child who just started to learn voice and um, how to sing. And three years ago, um, we met again and we started to work about uh, an album. We released an album, a sounds album, that he finds some really rare songs and sounds from synagogue that came from Saloniki. And you can't find any records of this sound. So it, this is the first time that anyone sing it like in professional and um, make an album of this and after this work about the album he decided to write me a piece with an orchestra because he believed this music deserved to have the best of the best and after he uh, writes this beautiful music he went to Barak Tal the conductor and ask him to, to perform with this piece. And Barak also fall in love in the music and in the world and in the, in the sounds, of course. And we started to work about it. Now, this piece, it actually, it's in a way, the format in which the, this ancient text is presented, it's an integration of musical traditions much in a way that you yourself as an artist has developed. Definitely. I can talk about me singing this music. I am a Sephardic woman singing songs um, on a famous and legendary stage. And this, this genre, this ethnic genre, it's combined and bringing my Sephardic music uh, tradition that I grew up with uh, to the classical orchestra, to the classical music. I am bringing new genre, kind of fusion. It's a, I called it like classical ethnic music. It's something that's never done before. 
How did you find this musical voice for yourself? Oh, oh, oh. this is a very great uh, question because I grew up in uh, between two worlds. My parents divorced when I was very little and my father became an ultra-Orthodox man. And in Shabbat dinner, my father, he started to teach me how to sing songs and how to sing holy songs. And I really, really liked it. And that's the point that I find my voice there. But I didn't find my way in the ultra-Orthodox life. But I wanted to sing so deeply. So um, I went to a voice lesson and suddenly I became an opera singer. No, <laughs> uh, it, took, it took time, but I decided to have a degree in the Buchmann uh, Meta School of Music in the University of Tel Aviv. And when I finished the degree, I started my career as an opera singer. But I understand that I really longing, deeply missing my roots and my passion to sing songs and to sing spiritual music. But I also fall in love in the classical music. And, and it took me like a very good three years of uh, trying to find myself and trying to find my voice. But then I, I believe now I find it and I'm ready to present it. So is there an existing repertoire? Um, as you mentioned, this piece actually perhaps could be an example of that. Or is it ha- how you, you choose to sing certain classical pieces in a certain presentation that reflects these different parts of you? It maybe sound a cliche, but I believe that I didn't decide to do it. It's just choose I, I was choosing to do it it's it just happened and I, I can't and I can't really say in words how it's happened because it's 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 my life story it's what my father teach me and what I learned in the university and what this composer Daniela Daniela Kiva decided to write to me he really I, I can't thinking about any other composer who can write this piece and write this music for me. Now, you will be performing here in Israel. You're actually living now in Germany. What is the experience, especially in these times performing abroad? Do you feel that impact uh, when you're performing abroad? Of course. I actually moved one month before... um, before the 7th of October. So I didn't have time to feel the energy of living as a, as a um, singer, a Jew singer in Europe. So everything I'm doing now, it's connected to the 7th of October. Everything I'm doing now, it's for the hostages. I'm singing in some um, demonstration for um, uh, release the hostages and I'm singing a solidarity um, concert for Israel and it's crazy because the security sometimes it scares me and most of the concert I'm afraid that someone could hurt me but I also find it very um, relaxing that I can do something to help this 
situation. Soprano Shani Oshri. Thanks for listening. This is Mark Weiss wishing you Shabbat Shalom from Jerusalem.
Kerem Shemesh Meuchem 